thanks Clark and Julia and Liz and for asking me. Thank you all for giving up your Friday evening to come and listen to a talk about uh, a heavy, a heavy matter, but an important matter. Um, <clears throat> before I do, just a, again a word about myself. I've been in Labrie for about eight years. We're outside of Boston by about 45 minutes. I've been married for 13 years. I have two kids, a 10 year old and a six year old, um, Jacob and Lily. Um, yeah, I don't know, it's a, a little bit about me. And I wanna begin with prayer. Of course, this is a prayer that comes from uh, the Book of Common Prayer at least the one, the Book of Common Prayer, this, this side of the border. I don't know if the Canadian Book of Common Prayer is slightly different, but this is a prayer of self-dedication. And it touches on a few of the things that I wanna to get to in the talk. Um, so uh, yeah, so here's this prayer. Almighty and eternal God, so draw our hearts to you, so guide our minds, so fill our imaginations, so control our wills that we may be wholly yours, utterly dedicated unto you. And then use us, we pray, as you will, and always to your glory and the welfare of your people through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, what I want to really consider together this evening, and again, thank you for coming, uh, for tuning in. Uh, is this discernible pattern that I've become more and more aware of in my conversations with guests here at Labrie. And it's a pattern, it's a connection between unwanted compulsive porn use and a profound sense of self-rejection, self-hate, despair, and hopelessness that a lot of people feel. I, I don't know how many times in conversations with guests I've heard folks say, and excuse my language right up front, but I've heard this over and over again. So many people just say, I'm just a piece of shit. Like talking about how they've been mired and bogged down in this unwanted, unwanted behavior. They find this, this phrase, I'm just a piece of trash, I'm just a piece of shit. They hate themselves. There is this deep-seated self-rejection that has just cut off hope. I've been just surprised how dark things get quickly. A powerful example of this sort of dynamic, I came across in a podcast that I don't recommend. It's not worth your time. The podcast is called The Butterfly Effect. It's not an enjoyable listen. It's not an easy listen. Uh, and it's, it's looking at what, what are the consequences of free, unlimited porn with open access to it? What does that do for us as a culture? And in one of the episodes, the host interviews this couple named Dan and Rihanna, and they run a company in the San Fernando Valley that makes bespoke porn. It makes custom porn. And they follow down to the most minute detail the requests that their high paying customers want. The appearance of the actors, the exact dialogue, the tone of voice, the wallpaper, the lighting. And interestingly, Dan and Rihanna said it's not unusual for them to receive requests for movies, for films where there's no nudity and there's no sexual behavior whatsoever. Uh, they recount such requests as a woman who is swatting flies in her kitchen and growing increasingly frustrated. They tell another one of a man who, uh, of a woman who walks into a room, a beautiful woman walks into a room, sees a stamp collect 
a stamp collection on a coffee table. She makes fun of the stamp collection and then sets it on fire. This is the whole, the whole film that's made. And it feels like a moment of levity in an otherwise pretty somber, dark podcast. I'm sure it is, provides a field day for psychoanalysts sort of go into all of that, but it takes a pretty somber turn pretty quickly because Dan and Rhiannon recount a story um, <clears throat> about, they get an email late at night from a man who requests the following script for his bespoke porn. Uh, he wants a fully clothed porn actress to sit cross-legged and look directly into the camera, uh, directly in and say the following thing. You are loved. Things are bad now, but they won't always be bad. Suicide is not the answer. Dan immediately writes back. He never hears back from the man, but he responds. And without any further correspondence, without any exchange of money, they decide to go ahead and film this scene as best they can, as beautifully as they could, in hopes that this person will receive it, and hopes that it will do something for this person. If they ever hear back, the podcast doesn't say, <clears throat> and it's hard not to assume the worst. And when the actress who, who says this to the camera, when she's interviewed, she can't help but cry. If she just breaks down weeping. Now there's a, a professor at Baylor University, a guy named Alan Jacobs, who's worth reading everything he's written. He's a sharp guy and he's commented on this exact piece, he wrote an op-ed, this sort of clued me in on this. And he said the following thing, it's a, it's a bit of a longer quote, so stick with me. I think it's quite helpful. He says this, this is Alan Jacobs again. <clears throat> Long ago, we all learned from Freud or Freud's followers to see sexual desire as the most powerful force acting on the human will. And though almost everything Freud taught has been thoroughly discredited, the idea still holds sway. The idea that beneath our multitude of impulses lurks eros, that desire with a thousand masks. And yet, as I reflect on this story, I see that eros is sometimes itself a mask. Why might a man suffering as this nameless man was suffering turn for help to people who make pornography? Perhaps because porn is a fantasy in the sense of a dream world in which your desires are fulfilled. But at least sometimes what we want is not sex as such, but rather to live out a dream of human connection, a dream of warmth stronger and more comforting even than the warmth of bodies." End of quote. In some ways, I think we could stop there and have a really great conversation about this unexpected event in this podcast, Jacob's analysis. I think his questions send us in the right direction. Why did he turn to people who make porn? And is there something kind of deeper than, than eros in us? I can't speak for all times and for all situations, but from my reading about this whole thing, as well as countless conversations with guests here at Labrie, my guess, my hunch is that what drives compulsive use of pornography is not exclusively lust. It's not eros, this desire that wears a thousand masks, as Jacob says. The appeal of porn is often somewhere else, someplace deeper under the mask of eros, as he says. And so it often remains hidden from us. 
which means that our presenting problems are not always our primary problem. This is a simple enough dynamic that I think we can see in all sorts of areas of our own life. Unwanted behavior has roots in places that are murkier to us. Presenting problems, primary problems. If we only aim at our presenting problems, lust, eros, use of porn, which, is, which are real problems, um, I think we can miss the deeper, this whole system of roots, this ecosystem below these presenting problems that perpetuate these problems. And so I just, I found I'm more and more unsure about sort of common evangelical approaches to pornography that deal with mostly behavior modification or accountability or software are in and of themselves kind of sufficient. I think there's more going on. Again, this dynamic presenting problems, primary problems. And we'll look at some of that a little bit further on. So I wanna give you an idea of where we're going. Uh, I wanna talk about imagination first. What is an imagination? And in the cumbersome title I gave Clark, I believe I used the word pornified imagination. So what is an imagination? What does it mean that it's pornified? And then I also put in the title three questions. And I just want to lay out and walk through three very simple, but I think important questions that I use when talking with guests here uh, who are struggling through unwanted compulsive use of pornography. The questions are simple enough. The questions are, how did I get here? Why do I stay here? And how can I get out of here? Those are the three questions. So we'll kind of walk through some of those. So again, first, imagination. You might hear imagination and you might think pretending, not real, made up, but that's not primarily what I intend by the term imagination. Our imaginations are a faculty by which we know things. We use our imagination to comprehend, to interpret, to organize our reality. It's a means by which we know, and it enables us to make connections between things where the connections aren't readily apparent in the moment. So an example of imagination might be helpful here, rather than just a description of it. I got this from a theologian named Kevin Van Hooser, and he talks about two medieval stonemasons. They're hard at work, chiseling away at these massive blocks. And you walk up to one of them and you say, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm chiseling this rock into, into sort of this big stone shape that will, um, that's, that's what I'm doing. I'm chiseling at this rock. And it'll be put in a pile over there and eventually be used. And if you walk up to another, the other one, and said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm building a cathedral. See, the, in a sense, strictly speaking, they're both true. Both answers are correct. But the second stonemason has answered the question through his imagination. He sees the stones, he sees his chisel, he sees the hammer, but he also has perceived the significance, the end, the purpose of the work that he's doing. This is more of an imagination at work, building a cathedral. It's a judgment that isn't just the result of knowing certain facts, um, but of making connections between what we're doing and their significance. It's knowledge that's in our head, but it's also knowledge that's in our guts, it's in our hearts. Um, and from my time talking, I think bringing imagination in is important because 
from my time listening to folks uh, talk about this repeated compulsive use of porn, it destroys, it, it eats away at the way they uh, not just see their own lives and their own selves, but how they perceive their life significance, how they perceive their own role in their lives. Uh, and while it's maybe natural for us to compartmentalize um, the parts which we think porn would affect, like our sexuality, our thoughts about other people, lust, all those sorts of things. But porn is, like all sin, is no respecter of boundaries. And it damages us in ways we're not often aware of and in more ways than we tend to assume. And so I think it, it gets at our imagination. Again, this faculty of knowing that makes connections, that perceives significance and meaning. And so what might it look like for an imagination to be pornified? What does this mean? Uh, this term pornified comes from, at this point, a pretty outdated book called Pornified. It's by a, uh, a journalist named Pamela Paul. And her, her point is that this book is probably 20 years old now, um, but it's just called Pornified. And she's tracking the way that what she, she calls the aesthetics, the standards, and the values of porn have seeped from the margins of society into the mainstream of society. And part of her work is to show it's not just that there's like more porn out there than there ever has been, which is true, um, but that when we consume porn, when we sit in front of a screen, whether it's a phone, a computer somewhere, we get aroused, we masturbate to this, we, we, we have this experience, it's doing something to us. It's shaping us in some way, it affects us. It's not the sort of activity that we walk away from unchanged. We, we, we become different people through this. It does something to us. She works with uh, some insights of a, of a woman named Marianne Leiden, who also has a great essay. I'm just gonna hold throughout the night. I didn't make a PowerPoint because my, I'm sorry for those who love PowerPoints. I'm gonna hold up a few books throughout the night that I think are helpful. Uh, this is a book that's called The Social Costs of Pornography. It's a collection of essays. It's by sociologists, historians, theologians. It's not Christian. Um, and Marianne Leiden has a really interesting, really helpful essay uh, in this book. Um, and one of the things she highlights, though, is that porn is the ideal learning context. This is good news for porn. This is bad news for me just talking to you. Um, but she says, we learn best with images than we do with just words. We perceive images to be objective, to be based in reality, while words, what I'm giving to you tonight, are just someone's opinion. It's easier for us to see them that way. She says, we actually learn better, though, when we see images, if we're aroused. It sort of clicks in our, our systems to be more attentive, to pull things in. She says, we learn better still if, if uh, if there's some sort of reinforcement and an orgasm, the, the, the sensation of watching porn and masturbating is quite a powerful reinforcement. She says, we learn better still, again, images over words, arousal, uh, reinforcement, but she says, we learn better still when we see others modeling this, which in porn, we're watching other people. And so she says, in porn, we're absorbing all sorts of messages, all sorts of, of uh, truths that uh, we're not always aware of 
and we're absorbing them on a deep level, uh, again, that we're not often aware of. And this makes a lot of sense to me because I talk to folks uh, fairly regularly who hate porn, who want nothing to do with porn, who can give you a hundred reasons why porn is a terrible thing, but they keep being drawn back to it. There's something that has hooked them on some sort of deeper level. Um, and uh, apart from her work, there's also a ton of new research uh, on the neurological effects of, of habitual porn use. Maybe some of you are familiar with some of this stuff. I'm gonna point out again, just a few more resources. There's a website online called Fight the New Drug that has tons of, tons of stories and infographs and whatnot. There's also this book called Your Brain on Porn, uh, which I believe is by a, a Dutch guy. I could be wrong. Um, oh, Gary Wilson. That doesn't sound very Dutch. Maybe he's not Dutch. There's no Gary's, I think, uh, in the Netherlands. And the other, uh, Gary, Gary this, he's not a Christian. Uh, the other is called Wired for Intimacy by William Struthers, who is a professor of psychology at Wheaton. It's a Christian book. Um, and I, in a nutshell, um, you could say what this research has shown, uh, there's, there's a whole lot uh, on this. We can talk more about this in the question time too, um, is that our brains are wonderful in all sorts of ways. And our brains reward us with with certain chemicals that travel along certain pathways when we do good things. This is a neurological explanation on why we feel good when we do things that are good for us. So our brains are wonderful in that way, but the problem is our brains aren't discerning. So whether we go for a bike ride, whether we um, spend time with friends or watch a really funny Barbara Streisand movie, uh, our, our brains will send these chemicals down, but it's this, the same thing happens when we do things that aren't good for us, like using drugs. Uh, and there's sort of the neurobiology of, of, of addiction there too. And a similar thing happens uh, to our brains, neurologically speaking, when we look at porn habitually as when we do hard drugs. So that's sort of the name, Fight the New Drug, that organization that I, met, I mentioned, their name comes from that. And there's, there's a ton to say about this. Um, but what is really interesting, I think, or maybe what is helpful about it, uh, if you imagine you have a friend who starts smoking, uh, you would never approach your friend who's smoking and say, you shouldn't smoke because it's, it's wrong or it's bad. You would say, you shouldn't smoke because it's, it's going to kill you. It's like bad for your health. And so some of the stuff that this neurological research shows is that we don't just have to talk to folks about saying you shouldn't look at porn because it's bad, kind of approach it through a moral lens, which I think it definitely is a moral issue. But we can also say this is messing up your brain. Uh, this is messing up your body. Uh, this is messing up your whole person. So it's, it's, I think it's an interesting resource, especially in an age where people value kind of individual stories and science over anything else. So Again, William Struthers' book is great. Fight the New Drug is great. Your Brain on Porn is great. But it shows that, again, in another way, that porn is doing something to us that we're not aware of. It's reaching us on, on a deeper level. And if we circle back to that dynamic I talked about in the beginning, presenting problems and primary problems, so much is going on 
within us. We're just not cognitively always aware of how this stuff is shaping us or how we can really talk about it uh, and what it means. And so it's important, I think, in a place like this to ask questions of ourselves, to ask questions of our unwanted behavior, unwanted behavior like compulsive horn use. Uh, as difficult as this is, as painful as it can be, it's important to dig into these issues. It sounds counterintuitive. We want to run away from temptation. We want to run away from our problems. But it's important to understand what exactly this is doing for us, why, it, why we keep returning to unwanted behavior, because it's doing something for us. Otherwise, we wouldn't come back to it. And I think this leads to genuine self-knowledge and perhaps begins to tell us, gives us clues on the way forward. One of my heroes of the Christian faith is a much maligned and much misunderstood guy named John Calvin, uh, a French Swiss Protestant reformer. And he wrote this massive work of theology and it begins by saying there's two types of knowledge worth having, knowledge of God and knowledge of self. And Calvin says, I can't for the life of me figure out which one comes first. These are self-implicating knowledges. The more we know about God, the more we see ourselves in light of God, the more we know about ourselves, the more we know what it is that God has offered us in Christ. And so I think anything that can lead to more genuine self-knowledge is a good thing and something Christians should be pursuing. And I say that because so many folks that I've talked with, they're profoundly aware of the behavior they want to change, the behavior they hate, but they are surprisingly inarticulate, they're imprecise as to why they continue in it. I've heard so many times, maybe you've heard something like these as well, but sweeping generalizations to explain why people are stuck in places of unwanted behavior. Things like, I'm just a guy or I'm an addict, or I'm lustful, or I'm bored. And you could go on and on and on to not even really knowing why you would want to do those things. And again, it's important to ask ourselves questions, to interrogate, to not just run from ourselves, even when it's shameful, even when it's embarrassing. And so that's why I wanna kind of walk through these three questions and consider different ways to make sense of that. But before we do, I just want to say a brief word about shame, because shame shows up all over the place in my conversations with, with folks about this, especially Christian folks. And shame is an incredibly powerful reality that keeps us from doing this work of looking beneath our presenting problems to our primary problems, whatever's hiding beneath them, whatever's fueling them on. Um, and it's worth differentiating, even just briefly, the difference between shame and guilt. We do this a lot around here with folks. Um, and I, I'm using some of the teaching, uh, my, my colleague and longtime Labrie guy, uh, Dick Kyes, he has a book called Beyond Identity, which I meant to grab, but I didn't grab. It's a great book. We use it here a fair bit with folks, but he, I think, has a helpful way to distinguish between guilt and shame. And so while guilt is a failure to live up to a moral standard, a standard that is outside of ourselves, uh, breaking God's law, we could say. Uh, shame is a failure to live up to a model of the person we wanna be. 
So morals, uh, guilt has to do with a moral standard and shame has to do with a model, the person we aspire to be. So when we indulge in unwanted sexual behavior, when we look at porn, we break a moral standard and incur guilt, but we also fail to be the sort of person we hope to be, and then we experience shame. And guilt tells us we've done something wrong, which is often true, but shame tells us that we ourselves are wrong. Remember what I said in the beginning, folks just kind of coming to this place of saying, I'm just a piece of trash, I'm just a piece of shit. And that is not true. That is just not true at all. Shame is powerful and it's often humiliating. And so we run from shame, we run away from it and we run away from ourselves. And when we run from shame, instead of confronting it and the claims that it's making about us, that we are wrong at our core, we unintentionally legitimate its message about us. We deepen its message about us, that we are wrong, that we are worthless, which is just not, not true, which is not the case. Jay Stringer, who is a counselor a little south of you all in Seattle, in his book, Unwanted, which I think is a great book, uh, a great resource on this. Uh, he says this, he says, a desire to stop pursuing unwanted sexual behavior will be only as effective as your ability to identify and dismantle the underlying infrastructure that creates your need from it, your need for it, I'm sorry. He's talking about those deeper, hidden, more primary problems. The stuff that I think comes out in conversations often over a long period of time we've, I've had with guests here. And so with these things kind of in place, I want to move to our three questions. How did I get here? Why do I stay here? And how do I get out of here? Uh, and, and by here, I just mean a place of compulsive, habitual, um, porn use. Sometimes people speak about this as addiction and there's in the literature, there's a lot of disagreement about it. It goes way over my head, above my pay grade. It's a debate for another time. I often feel talking to people, they sound like they're addicted to porn. I've read some things that maybe complicate that. So that's just part of the reason why I haven't used that, that language myself. But if there's anything to this brain science um, that I mentioned before, I do think there's, there's something there. Um, uh, but, but much about the nature of addiction though, even if we want to settle on that, remains a mystery. A helpful way into the discussion is, uh, that I found is through the work of a, a physician and an addiction specialist who's in BC, a guy named Gaber Mate, a Gabor Mate. And he says some pretty off the wall stuff. He says some wild stuff that I would in no way want to say I'm 100% with Mate on everything, but he does say some pretty helpful things. He has this large and at times wonderfully insightful book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghost, Close Encounters with Addiction. And again, he says a lot of off the wall things. It's no wholesale endorsement, but some of it rings really true to me as a Christian. And he says, uh, he encourages us to ask, before we ask why the addiction, why this compulsive unwanted behavior, the presenting problem, we need to ask the question, why the pain? Mate, who has spent decades working with addicted people in Vancouver's downtown east side, and for 
those who know that area, I actually worked there for three years. I lived in BC for six years. I went to region college um, and then ended up working in the downtown east side for the same organization uh, that, that Gabor did, though I was like a janitor and he is this like great doctor. Um, it's not like we were buddies, you know, like our offices were next door or anything like that. But again, if we ask why the addiction, before we ask why the addiction, we need to ask why the pain. Uh, and he believes uh, that addictions always originate in pain, whether felt openly or hidden in the unconscious, addictions are emotional anesthetics. And he goes on to talk about how all people carry pain with them. And unless we learn to deal with this pain, we look for something to remove it, to numb it, to distract us from it. Uh, and this happens, uh, kind of figuring out what this pain is, I think often happens over a long period of time in prayer, in conversation with a trusted person where you're honored and cared for. And one of the things that, that brought this home for me was a guest here who we spent, um, we spent all 12 weeks of his time here speaking about porn. And he had started looking at porn around 10. He was 24 at this point, and he'd had maybe a month to two months sobriety of not looking at porn uh, in that 14 years, really, since he started. It was initially kind of weekly, then daily, then multiple times a day. And this guy was an awesome guy. He was great. I loved him. I, I think he's great. But about four or five weeks into talking about this, he told me the story that he had just sort of pieced together on his own. He said when he was a kid and his parents would fight, uh, his parents would argue, he would run and hide under the stairs. Under the stairs, there was a little like Harry Potter cupboard and he would close the door and he would stay under the stairs. And under the stairs, he was safe from a reality that was hard for him to comprehend, hard for him to make sense of, and just was painful. And he said, he really, really, he really he stopped going under the stairs once he discovered porn. And then porn functioned for him in the same way the stairs did. Of course, the difficulty, the confusion, the complications of life became bigger than just his parents fighting. Where am I going to go to college? What am I going to do with my life? How do I do whatever it is that I want to do? But porn for him became a way to sort of step away from and disengage a difficult, confusing, painful reality. And he spoke about it as it's, he's been hiding under the stairs for 14 years of his life, unable to come out from under the stairs and really live life. It was, yeah, uh, quite, quite something. Yeah, quite a, he was an amazing guy. Um, but Mate goes on to say, emotional isolation, powerlessness and stress are exactly the conditions that promote the neurobiology of addiction. Now, I, I again, not everything Mate, Mate says is I would be on board with, but I think this calls for self-interrogation. It can lead to genuine self-knowledge, which is rarely the outcome of sort of the sweeping generalizations we hear when people just say like, I'm an addict, I'm a guy, I'm lustful. Uh, Mate's this this idea of, of pain being underneath. What is the pain? What is our what is it that we're dealing with? Um, it leads us to know ourselves better. And I, I also I, I like this because it doesn't place the problem solely in our genes or 
in the substance itself. It makes space for both of those factors, um, but it employs our agency that we have something to do with our own life. And so I think ask, answering this question, how did I get here, really means what, asking, what is this doing for me? Uh, what is perhaps the pain, the discomfort, the confusion? Uh, something that you can't get answered just in a Libri lecture. Uh, but there's two more questions. And the second question is, why do I stay here? Why do I return to unwanted behavior? And so I want to put forward five possible uh, human dynamics that could be at root, uh, could be part of the primary problem we face. Um, uh, and so there's, there's five things so that I'll talk about. I'm gonna talk about deprivation, futility, dissociation, lust, and anger. And certainly there's way more than this, um, uh, but these are just some that I have found uh, through talking with folks and so they can play out independently or they can be in tandem. So I'm just gonna give a scenario where we're gonna see all five and then we'll walk through them one at a time. So you have, imagine you have a terrible day at work. You get nothing done, your presentation fails, your boss yells at you, your colleagues, and things are just funny and you feel like your job is pointless. This is futility. This is an experience of futility. So you go home, you binge on Netflix and a bag of Doritos. This is dissociation. You sort of come out of this Dorito Netflix induced coma around 10 o'clock and you realize you've done nothing with your day that you wanted to do. And so you're angry, you're frustrated. And in your anger, then you find yourself scrolling porn uh, to sort of get you away from that. This is then lust. The next day you feel overcome with guilt for failing to live up to a moral standard, but you also feel shame for not being the sort of person you thought you were or wanted to be. And maybe someone asks you to go do something fun after work, but you decline because somehow this atones for the bad behavior of the previous day. This is deprivation. So those are the sort of five things in an imaginary but possible scenario. And we'll walk through each one. And again, the first one, is deprivation. So Stringer, again, in the super helpful book, Unwanted, writes, although unwanted sexual behavior appears to be a towering tree of self-indulgence, its strength comes from the massive roots of deprivation below the surface. It's important to say that ignoring our needs, depriving ourselves is not necessarily noble or virtuous. In fact, it often is not, uh, and it can be quite spiritually dangerous if our self-denial is not led by love of God or love of neighbor. What I mean by this, at least in part, is that self-deprivation is often, often one side of a turbulent seesaw, and the other side is indulgence. We deprive ourselves, then we indulge ourselves. We deprive ourselves, we indulge ourselves. Deprivation is often the doorway to entitlement. It's two sides of the same coin. And many of us can move through our days feeling overworked, underappreciated, and so we feel as though we're entitled to certain things because we've denied ourselves something else. It's almost as though there's this powerful but unarticulated moral calculus 
in the universe. And when we crunch the numbers, we're entitled to indulge because we previously denied ourselves something that's perhaps unrelated. I had an extra slice of, of cake at my, my daughter's party. Therefore, or there, I didn't have an extra slice of cake. Therefore, I deserve a couple extra beers. This really doesn't make any sense. There's no reason why the one leads to the other. But we deny ourselves something, then we somehow keep track of it, and we feel we're entitled to something else. So this sense of deprivation, I think, keeps us stuck. We're entitled to something that we want. Um, uh, and I, I think this is a human dynamic that's at play. So deprivation is the first one that I, I see, I hear in a lot of conversations with folks. The next one is futility. Uh, futility, this is an experience of lacking purpose, of spinning our wheels, of passing our days. We work hard to get ahead or to get a promotion, but somebody else gets it. We work hard to pay off our student loans, but they are just there. They never really go away. And in the language of Genesis 3, this is the thorns and the thistles of the ground. Life feels futile. We work hard. We try to get things done. And it just doesn't really happen. And I think part of pornography's appeal is those thorns and those thistles. Because our experience of futility disappears when we stream porn. In porn, there's no risk, there's no imagination required of us. All we have to do is consume. Porn offers us momentarily a world without futility, almost as though a world without a fall. Like, it's almost like a Thomas Kincaid painting. There's no relational maturity that's required for us to navigate the relationships, and we have we gain a risk-free conquest through porn. And so if you wanna fight porn use, if you wanna fight against unwanted behavior, it's not about suppressing desire, it's about fighting to discover meaning in life amidst the thorns and the thistles of the ground. So we talked about deprivation, we talked, I talked briefly about deprivation, futility, now dissociation. Yet instead, often, instead of fighting to discover meaning, we can dissociate uh, from our futility. Uh, for many, when we look at our lives, what we see is our glaring failures, our isolation, our absent motivation. We can feel overwhelmed. We experience shame and anxiety. And so we want to run from all of these things because to confront it is too much work. It's too painful. And any behavior I think that is a flight from reality is dissociative in some sense. It's times where we put our humanity in neutral. We remove ourselves from the difficult work required to become mature and competent adults. Dissociation is of course a psychological term where we disengage from ourselves, our bodies, our surroundings, we're subconsciously pulled or seduced out of the present through a world of distractions. And this runs a spectrum from complex dissociative states in response to trauma, which is not really what I'm talking about, uh, to just unconscious hours of streaming Netflix or scrolling Instagram or Twitter. Uh, that, that's more of what I'm talking about. But complex problems can occur when we sexualize our dissociation through viewing porn. 
it becomes, and when it becomes our default way of dealing with pain, we leave difficult relational or vocational realities back behind us as we escape to a fantasy where we're in control, where we're wanted, where we're owed pleasure. And again, remembering Marianne Leiden's work uh, that <clears throat> shows up again in the social class of pornography. Porn is an ideal learning context. We're not just dissociating, we're not just stepping away, we're learning, we're being shaped. And that will ultimately just create greater dissatisfaction with our present, with our present state when reality comes rushing back in. So we talked about deprivation, talked about futility, dissociation, and I want to consider lust and anger together, the final two common dynamics of things that keep us stuck in places where we don't want to be. Uh, it, it's worth saying that though they're twisted in upon themselves, lust and anger do, at least in part, point to a desire for good things. Lust is a twisted desire for beauty and the need to connect, which has been hijacked by sin and is now a desire to possess someone else sexually. And anger can point to a need for justice and the acknowledgement that things are wrong. In fact, there are many things worth being angry about. If you're not angry about something, I think there's, you need to be angry about many things. Anger can be the right response if justice has been violated. But that's not the sort of anger I have in mind. Instead, I'm thinking about maybe what you would want to call unrighteous anger. Anger that's in response to when we just don't get what we want. And there's some manner of connection between these two. When, when they're talked about, sometimes they're talked about very closely together. Uh, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, talks about both of these things. The letter to James speaks about both of them kind of closely in tandem. And well, I think lust gives um, men the opportunity to escape pain, the eroticized anger in porn is a demand that someone else be used to exact revenge for the pain or discomfort in their own life. All too often, if we don't learn to marvel at beauty, we can grow to hate it and bend it and break it and control it so that it's ours. Um, there, I should probably have said something at the beginning. There's, there are a few harder or more difficult things uh, in this, some pretty offensive things. But you can see this dynamic of lust and anger working out together through a quote from a veteran porn producer, actor, director, a guy who recently passed away. His name is Bill Margold. Um, and so this is fairly frank. But he says, I really, uh, I'd like to really show what I believe men want to see. Again, this is a, a, a 30, 30 year veteran in the porn scene. I'd like to really show what I believe men want to see. Violence against women. I firmly believe that we serve a purpose by showing that. The most violent we can get is the cum shot in the face. Men get off behind that because they get even with the women they can't have. We try to inundate the world with orgasms in the face. He goes on to say that this is sort of like a dog marking its territory. You can see that anger and resentment is just right there in lust. It's very graphic, and I, I hesitated on whether or not to say it. Um, 
but it's worth putting out there that that is sort of where porn is today. Porn is in no way about just naked bodies, people having sex. It's very aggressive. It's very violent. Um, but this shows a comment. I think there's some truth to a, a phrase that I've heard many times from many different authors that whatever is not transformed, if we don't transform our pain or allow God, maybe better yet, to transform our pain, we will always transmit our pain. Uh, always someone else has to suffer because I don't know how to suffer myself. Uh, I don't know what to do with it myself. And so lust and this sort of unrighteous anger can be like two peas in a pod. And if we want to understand lust, we also under, need to understand its connection to anger uh, and that anger can actually fuel further lust. We can lust for any number of things, for sex, for food, for attention, for, for various things, a new car. But when we don't get what we want, we can find our hearts full of anger and we demand to have our desires met. And I think these the, the last three things I spoke about um, about dissociation, about um, lust and anger can all move on a spectrum. They deform and become darker uh, from an experience of this to just almost like a state of being. Uh, and so like futility turns into resignation, lust turns into perversion and anger into degradation. Um, and just recalling what Bill Margold said as a veteran porn director, what he sees the point of porn, the work of porn, we can, we can see those trajectories being played out. So those were the five things. I'll walk back, walking backwards through them. Anger, lust, dissociation, futility, deprivation, things that keep us stuck. But the more I speak with people, and I mostly talk with young, younger men or middle-aged men, but not exclusively, uh, about porn, the more I'm convinced but psychological, sociological explanations, as helpful as they are, as important as they are, they're not all that's going on. As Christians, we have an enemy. And our enemy, the devil, hates sex. He hates human flourishing, but he loves porn. And he loves the self-rejection that I mentioned at the very beginning of this lecture that often comes out in a porn user, their self-understanding. And I don't have a thoroughly worked out understanding of spiritual warfare, but I wanna speak about at least maybe two components of it, the where of spiritual warfare and the how, the where and the how. And so the first is the where. Scripture tells us that there's certain parts of the created order, which to some extent picture the nature of God, pictures of the gospel that God has embedded into the created order. These are things that not fully, not completely, the world has fallen, but things like the Sabbath, things like the family, Christian community, the human person, and our, ourselves were made in the image of God, uh, human sexuality, thinking of Paul's language about marriage in Ephesians 5. Uh, all of these things point to something beyond themselves. They're, they're um, embedded signs in the created order of the gospel, of who God is, they're pointers. And they are ultimately then, if they are, if they show us something about God, they're a sign of the eventual end of our enemy's reign, his campaign against God, 
the ultimate crushing of his head under the foot of Christ's people, as Paul puts it in Romans 16. And so these are places in the created order which in some manner exhibit the gospel and they show us something of the nature of God. And I think these are the places our enemy wants to subvert and undo and destroy. These are the targets, the where of spiritual warfare. And so sexuality in general, but also just the vocation of being human, I think are in his sights. So that's the where, but also the how, the how of spiritual warfare. For many of us, for myself included for a long time, when we think of warfare, we think of tanks, we think of troops, bombs, guns, uh, what you could call hard power. But the nature of warfare is changing through digital media, Facebook, Twitter, uh, there's a new sort of power. There's what you can call soft power. You might not be able to control the outcome of a fight, but you can control the narrative through which uh, you can control the narrative through misinformation, through deception. There's been so much of this that has gone on south of the border uh, through social media in regards to elections and all sorts of things. And I think about one of the places where Jesus speaks most directly about our enemy. This is in John chapter 8, which you can read on your own time later. And he's talking to religious leaders, and he's talking about our enemy. He's talking about Satan's intentions. And Jesus says that his goal, the devil's goal, Satan's goal, the liar's goal, is to murder, to steal, to kill, and destroy. And he, Jesus goes on to say how he goes about doing this. Jesus says he does this through lies. He calls the devil the father of lies. And he says the origin point of all lies is the devil. And when the devil speaks, he lies. And that is his native tongue. This is not often how I think of spiritual warfare. Lies and truth to me are the realm of apologetics, of theology, of of preaching, but spiritual warfare is the realm of disease and demon possession, natural disasters, and parking tickets, and all sorts of terrible things. And I'm not denying any of that stuff. I think they can be real. But in Jesus's most in-depth teaching on spiritual warfare, he doesn't talk about that stuff. He talks about lies. And so to some extent, the devil's power is not like the power of a great military, but more like the soft power of digital media to control a narrative through a campaign of disinformation, through the power of lies. So part of spiritual warfare, I think, is for us to believe the truth over lies. Now, what is all of this? What does porn have to do with spiritual warfare? and lies. Well, I think it's most likely apparent that part of this campaign of disinformation waged through porn perpetuates lies about the nature of sex itself. But what I think is less often apparent, but even more sinister, are the lies that are perpetuated about the porn user themselves. There is this powerful link, again, that I said in the beginning, between compulsive porn use and self-rejection. And I think it's important for us to understand because unwanted behavior makes claims on us as people. 
And this shuts off hope. This embeds despair, and it does so on a very, very deep register that's sometimes below conscious reflection. It's kind of on the level of imagination where we make connections between what we're doing, who we are, and our significance and our purpose. This is the sort of, this is the place where the self-hate, the self-rejection I mentioned in the beginning, I think lodges. And so one way into considering uh, how this manner of spiritual warfare, this campaign of disinformation, uh, how it takes root in people uh, is through what we could call permissive thoughts. Permissive thoughts. These are the thoughts which run through our heads just before we do something, before we justify some unwanted behavior. And these thoughts can run on a spectrum from simple excuses like, it's not that big of a deal. It's been a long day, um, I deserve something like this. To maybe something like, this is the last time, after this, I'm never doing this again. Uh, the thoughts can go significantly darker. They can move down the spectrum, not just justifying behavior, but beginning to make claims on us as people. I can't get over this, so why not just do it? I am just too weak, why not just do it? I I'm just a failure, so just do it. And if you just take one of these kind of darker, more holistic claims that are permissive thoughts, I just can't get over this. And consider the sort of effects this line of thinking and have when it plays in someone's head over and over, day after day, year after year. It becomes something, of course, like a self-fulfilling prophecy, and it leads to despair and self-rejection. And this despair gets reinforced over time, and it gets darker, and it makes larger claims on us. I can't get over this becomes, I'll never get over this which becomes, this is just who I am. It's easy to see how this permissive thought has not just gotten darker, but it makes claims to know not only the future and our future behavior, but it claims to know the truth about who we are as people. This is who I am. I am a failure. I am a piece of shit. This sort of self-rejection and despair are of course lies, but they are powerful lies because it's taken a real instance of guilt, of a moral failure that happens maybe time and again, and it's expanded its significance from one instance to the entirety of one's self-understanding. This sort of self-rejection has gained plausibility through repetition, and it's known just not in our head but it's known in the heart, it's known in the gut, it's known in the imagination where we make the connections, uh, where we make connections uh, about significance and meaning and purpose. So in this place, kind of with this here, I want to then ask the final question, how do I get out of here? And I do this saying, I have no silver bullet, there's no magic recipe to break free of these things, but what I more and more what I think is central is having hope, uh, believing in the possibility that God can change us, that we can grow and change. And so central to this is 
the practice of talking back to ourselves, not just listening to ourselves, but talking back to ourselves. We have to ask, what if these permissive thoughts, what if they're wrong about us? How could we doubt them? What if they don't know us as well as we think they do? What if their claims just really aren't that on point? I'll just say this, as someone, if you have told me 20 years ago that I would be not looking at porn, not thinking about porn, not interested in porn as an almost 40-year-old, I wouldn't believe you. I wouldn't believe you at all because it had been such a part of my life that I just thought I'm going to have this forever. This is going to be my shameful little secret. It was implausible for me at that point to believe change was possible, but it has been possible. And I've seen it possible for lots of other people too. I'm actually more hopeful about the possibility of change and growth the more I've looked at like kind of the darkness of this stuff than I ever have been. And so one of the ways to instill hope, the possibility of change, again, is not just listening to ourselves, but talking back to ourselves. And I I thought about this a little bit for a number of years. My wife and I taught uh, Sunday school at our church. We taught the first graders when they graduated. Then we taught the second graders, third graders. So we followed the same group of kids from first grade until fifth grade. And part of what we had them do each week, part of the curriculum, was memorizing Bible verses. And initially, first grade, second grade, uh, they would get candy. They would get a a prize if they memorized the verse, which I know is wrong, which I know is inappropriate. I know that's not the best thing. Um, I know that, but it's just hard in the moment to not do. But as we got to know them, we would start to listen to them say things, uh, just sort of things that would slip out. And I I would assume it's similar in Canada, um, but in North America, there's this huge culture of being aware of bullies, bullies that are out there that are gonna do stuff to you. But we noticed that the kids, it wasn't just bullies that were out there, their classmates or their older siblings or neighbors, Uh, the bullies were also within them. We would hear them say like, oh, you know, I'm not, I didn't make the soccer team. I didn't make like the A soccer team. I just on the B soccer team. I suck at soccer. It's like, well, you don't suck at soccer. You just didn't make the A team. You're also in like fourth grade. You've got a lot of time. Like this isn't a big deal. Or I'm not as good as violin as Clark is, uh, which isn't Clark Scheibe. Sorry, there was another kid in our class. Clark, but kids developed quite early on uh, not just the awareness of bullies outside of them, but bullies within them. Bully thoughts is what we would talk about. Them. And by the time we were in fourth grade, we were talking about one of the reasons we memorize scripture is not just so that we can get candy, but so that we can have something to say back to our own bully thoughts. Something when our own thoughts condemn us, when, uh, when we sort of have this case against us, We have something to say to ourselves, something that is larger than us, something that is trustworthy to say back to these bully thoughts and sort of this pattern of permissive thoughts that I talked about moving darker. They move from permissive thoughts to bully thoughts, to self-condemning thoughts. And so there's two places in scripture that I I often sit with folks with. And the first is in the uh, first, it's first John 3, 20. Uh, you could you could look at it another time. First uh, John three twenty. It is an amazing 
passage of scripture, I think. Uh, and John says, for whenever our hearts condemn us, which sounds like bully thoughts, which sounds like uh, these permissive thoughts that have become all encompassing and reject us and hate us. It says, whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. God speaks something else. God doesn't reject us as his children. And what I love that John does is John doesn't say God is greater because he's love, because he's kind, because he's merciful, which are all true. But he says God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. John links God knowing everything to God's unwillingness to condemn us in the way that our hearts do. Of course, God convicts us of sin, but doesn't condemn us in our sin if we've if we're in Christ. And I love that because there's there's this sense where we think we know ourselves so well because we're aware of our shameful, unwanted, compulsive behavior that leads to this sense of self-rejection. But God knows more. God knows more. And that questions the plausibility of our own take on ourselves. The other place in scripture that I, I think is just generally fascinating and worth sitting with with folks is Jesus's baptism. Why on earth was Jesus baptized? It is a fascinating theological conundrum because if there was one person that didn't need to be baptized, it was probably Jesus. Uh, so why did he get baptized? Why was Jesus baptized? And I think part of the answer, it's kind of a bigger also theological thing, Part of the answer is Jesus wants to be associated with the humanity that needs to be associated with him. He's identifying himself with the people of Israel. He's identifying himself with the people of God. And the whole Trinity shows up here, right? The heavens open, the spirit descends, the voice of the father speaks. This is, or you are my beloved child. And I think having this to say back to ourselves, in, in a space of self-rejection, in a space of self-hate, can be incredibly powerful because, again, it questions the plausibility, the legitimacy of what our own permissive thoughts, our self-rejecting thoughts, have led us to believe. And it gives even just the slightest sliver of the possibility of hope. So I think and there's many other ways we can you can think about um, this practice of not just listening to ourselves, but talking back to ourselves. But it calls, it calls us to doubt the plausibility of the self-hate and the self-rejection that have become so deeply instilled uh, in so many of us. And again, as I said before, there's no silver bullet. There's no one-size-fits-all approach to lead one out. A, a, an image that's helpful for me, that I this is where a PowerPoint would have been helpful, is to think of three concentric circles uh, and to speak about circles of dependence. And the widest circle is, is that we're all dependent upon God all the time for everything we have. But the second circle is we are interdependent within community. So whatever we, people rely on us, we rely on other people, interdependent within community. And then ultimately, in the not, not really ultimately, but in the center, in the smallest circle, we are independent in self-care. There are things we can do for ourselves. And I think as we think about practical ways forward 
about how to get out of here, not just instilling hope, but other practices. Um, we do this aware of the fact that we're dependent upon God. We're interdependent upon others, whether those others are friends, family, professional counselors, pastors, Libri workers. Um, but ultimately, we're moving towards being a place of independence where we can live, live with more freedom. And I, I'm really happy to talk through other sort of practical things, but sometimes that doesn't always fit well uh, in, in a lecture. Um, but I'll just say a few that I think are helpful. I just mentioned briefly um, a counselor, a pastor. I think whether you're someone who's struggling with this or you know someone, having someone to talk to about this, someone to continue to ask questions, even sort of these simple questions we've, we've worked through tonight. How did you get here? Why do you st stay here? How can you get out of here? Talking through this and seeing what it is that porn is actually offering us that keeps bringing folks back to it and seeing if there's other places to get that and realizing that whatever porn is offering us, it's also doing way more damage and way more harm than we're aware of. And so a way to, a thing to also work through with that counselor, with that pastor, with that friend, uh, is this process, they, it's called, sometimes it's called linking or reverse journaling. And you go from a moment of giving into porn, you go from a moment of failure and you walk backwards through your day. And you begin to see that it's not just one isolated instance uh, of looking at porn, but it's connected to, again, maybe a bad day at work, maybe a fight you've had with your spouse, maybe some embarrassment that has happened. You begin to see how looking at porn is connected to, to the whole tapestry that is our lives. Um, anyway, I could, I could say a few more things, but I wanna end, um, I wanna end with a quote from Marilyn Robinson, who is a, uh, um, an American uh, novelist and essayist. Um, and it sort of, it gives another image. And I think about, I've thought about this quite a bit since I mentioned earlier in the talk about this young man who hid under the stairs for years and that porn for him became a way of escaping pain and confusion. And he saw it as hiding under the stairs. And what he wanted to do was to come out from underneath the stairs. And of course, underneath the stairs, there's this deep sense of self-hate and self-rejection. And that's how he imagined the significance of life. But I think Robinson in this quote that I'm gonna read from her book, Gilead, offers a different sort of image, uh, a, a different way to imagine ourselves that speaks to some of the things we've gotten at. And, so we come out from underneath the stairs and we come out onto the stage. So again, I'm gonna end with this quote from, from Marilyn Robinson. It's in her book, Gilead. So she says this, Calvin says somewhere that each of us is an actor on a stage and God is the audience. That metaphor has always interested me because it makes us artists of our behavior and the reaction to us might be thought of as aesthetic rather than morally judgmental in the ordinary sense. How well do we understand our role? With how much assurance do we perform it? 
I do like Calvin's image because it suggests how God might actually enjoy us. I believe we think about that far too little. It would be a way into understanding essential things since presumably the world exists for God's enjoyment. Not in any simplistic sense, of course, but as you enjoy the being of a child, even when he is in every way a thorn in your heart. So I'm going to stop there. I've talked for, I'm not exactly sure how long, but I'm sure more than, more than long enough. And we can open it up. But yeah, I'm happy to talk about anything or yeah, say anything fuller or receive any pushback or any questions or anything. Um, I just want to say thank you uh, just for leading us through, through a difficult top topic and yet also leading us to, to engage the darker spots, but without leaving us in despair. Um, and so I really appreciate that. And it seems like, you know, one of your, well, as you were talking, I was just thinking about how anger leads someone, can lead someone to porn or any addiction. And then after the use of porn, being angry at themselves for doing so. Yeah. It's just like vicious cycle, a, a spiral that leads down rather than deeper yeah. or up or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and I was thinking about Paul in Ephesians chapter four, verse 28. He says, and he's talking to people who steal. And he says, let the thief no longer steal. Oh, yeah. but rather Let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Yeah. You know, it's just this beautiful reversal, a reconciliation yeah. of, you know, they were taking, they were stealing. Well, now let their, their, they must be good with their hands. So let them do work. Stop stealing that, you know, uh, that command, let them work and then give to those in need so that they may not steal. Yeah. Uh, well, as you were talking, you were talking about self-corrective thoughts, uh, divinely inspired self-corrective thoughts, um, you know, uh, as Jesus does with the adulterous woman or the sinful woman, you know, who has condemned you, neither do I, go and sin no more. Um, what kind, it, it, it seems like you would suggest, okay, um, as, as you started with talking about whatever you do with your brain, whether you're exercising, uh, walking in the sunshine, resting, um, eating too much, drinking too much, watching porn, whatever it is, our brain needs good activity for restorative practices, for flourishing practices. Uh, what advice would you give to people who are, you know, just trying to stop porn? And it seems like most of yeah. them are trying to say, okay, I've got to stop. And they maybe stop for an hour. And then an hour later, there's like, well, I still haven't completed that thought. So <laughs> what would you recommend or suggest? Yeah. I mean, I, I always want to just get to know the person more um, <clears throat> and get to know the things that they love, the things that they care about. And um, I mean, and it, not a hundred percent of the time, but most of the time I find that the things people care about, they see as, um, uh, excuse me, they see as um, negatively affected um, by their, their porn use, that somehow porn has 
it's been sold in a way where it's like you can do this in the privacy of your own home with no consequence, with no fallout. But it always sort of seems to, after time, affect something they love. So I, I just want to hear more about what they love, more about what they care about. And um, I mean, I think inevitably, so I would say that just sort of, I don't have like a one thing for every person, but I mean, I think getting outside, getting into the, the dirt and getting into community, getting into some sort of, you know, relationship. I just spent um, a long time talk, talking with um, a, a guest that was here for a while about this. And he, he felt like what he was looking for after number of conversations what he was looking for uh in porn was affirmation um and he also spent a lot of time in chat rooms and he spoke about how there was like zero affirmation in his home and the first time he remembered really being affirmed was in sports uh by a coach mm. and he had made a few decisions in his life and then uh, found himself um, for different reasons, not really doing a lot of physical activity. So part of it, I mean, part of the discussion was like, whatever your your plan for sobriety, as he as he put it, was like it has to include um, one awareness of that, like that desire of affirmation, whether from God or from his parents or from other people or siblings, uh, but also doing things that he's been affirmed at. So like playing a lot, playing more sports, being more physically active. Um, that's just sort of one, one thought, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's different. I think there are some components to being human, um, that are, are so lacking, especially during the pandemic. Uh, I mean, that's why we're all on these screens. We, we long for human contact we long to know and to be known in in real ways so it's I feel like it's hard to just kind of throw out some of those simple answers but I, I think being having friends um, especially friends a few friends who you can kind of share anything with um, is super important and a, a community or or work that has has meaning um, so much of life, I talked about futility. So much of life feels futile, uh, I think, or feels purposeless, or just feels like I'm just doing this to get a check. Um, you know, there was a guy that uh, was a, he studied addictions. I can't remember his name. Maybe you'd be familiar, but he was studying because rats are often used for um, studying human brains because their brains work so similarly. Yeah. They got these rats addicted to heroin. And, uh, and they kept them in cages and tried to um, give them methadone. Yeah. Uh, and then the other rats were given, um, they still had access to heroin, but yeah. they had a playground, they had other rats, yeah. and they, uh, the ones that had community actually weaned themselves off almost 90%, where the other yeah. ones all remained or got worse. Yeah, yeah. Mate... Yeah, I, I, I've heard that. I don't know who that is. Mate talks about um, American soldiers in Vietnam who started smoking heroin. Uh, I guess some also probably injected too. 
And I mean, the number of them, while well, so while they were in Vietnam in this war that they didn't agree with doing things that were, they didn't want to do and caused all sorts of, you know, um, uh, um, moral damage uh, to themselves. Uh, I mean, the number is, I, it's amazing. I think he says it's 94% or 95% upon returning home stopped using mm. heroin without any sort of medical intervention or treatment. Mm. It was just moving back into a world with coherence and relationality and purpose mm. um, and all of those things that helped help them, whatever heroin was doing for them in Vietnam, they just didn't need it back in the States. And mm -hmm. it's some huge percentage. I feel like it's 94 and it mirrors that rats thing. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's other sort of like practical things. Like I've encouraged a lot of folks to um, like, like you rearrange a room. Like if there's a room that you use your phone in or your, you know, I guess the days of sort of desktop computers aren't what it used to be, but um, you rearrange the room because you're, you're um, some of the neurological research. So this book has a, a wire for intimacy talks about a study where um, um, these guys were supposed to, there was, they were viewing porn on a computer that always had a red baseball cap uh, on the corner of the monitor uh, that was hanging there. And so every time they would go, there was the red baseball cap. And then the red baseball cap was there, but they were told not to stream porn, but seeing the red cap sort of their brains began to be clued in yeah. like, um, Oh, there's the red cap. Now it's time for me uh, to look at porn. Uh, and so there's something about our environment uh, that, that nudges us. You know, there's that book, Nudges, um, that nudges us into certain behaviors or almost like puts us into cruise control or puts us into neutral. And um, so there is something about rearranging space, repainting a room, even moving. Um, but if there are places that have been known as places for uh, real, like giving in to temptation and failure, take, go the extra mile and, ch and change things up because you, your brain is wonderful and, can wor and works for you in so many ways all the time, but it can also work against you because your brain isn't discerning. Um, so yeah, anyway, there's, there's, yeah, there's all sorts of uh, things people could do, but I think getting into your body, getting into the world, getting into community, getting into meaning are so, so important. Um, uh, yeah. Well, uh, Joshua, thank you very much. Um, yeah, I really appreciate it. I'm Zach. Uh, we haven't met, but hey, Zach. Uh, yeah. yeah, it was a treat. Uh, I'm in the same time zone as you. So thanks for staying up late. Yeah. Um, Where are you, Zach? I'm in Philadelphia. Um, oh, cool. Are you a priest? <sighs> well, thanks for that compliment. No. Um, oh, I couldn't no, tell I from your shirt if you had a collar on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ooh, it does no, look no, no, a little no. bit yeah. like that. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. I'll remember that next time I wear this. Yeah. Um, no, yeah. I'm a, I am a uh, someone who came through Canadian Labrie about 11 years ago. 
Um, oh, cool. So, Very cool. Yeah, no, I really helpful conversation. Actually, this is something that was like not my presenting problem, but a, a primary one when I went to Labrie 10 years ago, years ago. Yeah, so yeah. this is like a really sweet topic and good to think through. Um, yeah, just I had two comments and a question. I'll try and be pretty brief. But um, yeah, the the Jay Stringer book, uh, Unwanted, has been such a helpful book um, oh, cool. for some yeah. of the people that I walk with. And I appreciate you you mentioning it. It's been, it's sort of like, it's been the theme of this last couple of years of working with this. It's like, hey, have you heard about this book? Um, and yeah. really helpful. So thanks for highlighting that, um, particularly the deprivation piece. I feel like that's, yeah, yeah, it's just something that doesn't exist in a lot of literature that I'm aware of. Um, yeah. And a lot of people that I work with have been like, it's, it's totally changed their approach and their thought process yeah. around it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't know, have you, are you familiar with the movie? It came out in the early 2010s, um, but it's Don John. It's got Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I know it, but I haven't watched it yet. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I recommend it. I mean, it's got some explicit things as you'd expect, but it's really great, well acted. And it's after reading Jay's book more recently, I thought back to that movie and what a great picture it is for I mean, this guy's very broken situation. It's Clark's kind of Friday night movie because everyone's very problematic and you don't like any character really. Um, but I liked the the way it, it depicted that. I think Jay's process and Jay's um, sort of worldview as he looks at it is really good. So I recommend it. Um, I think one of the things to, to agree with what you said about like people needing hope in the midst of this I think one of the ways I've seen people latch onto some hope is latching onto a story that is hopeful, um, whether that's talking with someone who's, um, yeah, who's done some healing work or even just reading about a fictitious guy yeah. uh, and acted by Joseph Gordon-Levitt to go, oh yeah, okay, here's a guy who's pretty heinously hooked on this um, and as, as problematically presented as you can get. Um, yet there's, there's a nice redemptive arc even though it's still problematic and it's good so um yeah. just to, to offer that out there yeah that's a I, before you yeah i was just gonna say that's a that's a really good point about and one of the things i don't know if you've seen the, the website about um the um fight the new drug they do a lot of stories mm -hmm. and there's something about a changed life even in a non-religious kind of non-christian context it's just very powerful and yeah. sort of hard, hard to argue against. Um, it just forces you to consider. Um, mm -hmm. So that's a, I think that's a great point about stories, stories and still hope. But yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, that yeah, and I just want to throw a question to you. You had mentioned when you referenced um, Dick's book um, and talking about the difference between guilt and shame. Um, I just want to ask your approach. Um, and I would imagine you've run into this. Sometimes I hear the response I get in talking about the difference between guilt and shame. And I thought you put it really well where it's you know, guilt is a, a compromise of morals, whereas shame is after a compromise of the image of ourselves. Um, so I like that, that paradigm that you, you referenced from Dick. I'm wondering how you talk with people that don't see a difference between those two things, whether that's an insight issue or... Um, yeah, just a, maybe even a story, a personal story issue where it's going, hey, you know, my my image 
and my morals are basically all all wrapped up in one and I can't sort them yeah. out. So for them, like they're they're crippled by these things and I can't apply those labels of guilt and shame appropriately. Um, have you run into that? And I just, if so, curious what you think yeah. about that. I mean, I, there's, um, I mean, it feels like, um, at least in my small corner of the world, a lot of people are talking about shame and thinking about shame. And, you know, Brene Brown has done a lot of work in the sort of wider culture. And then um, uh, Kurt Thompson uh, is a Christian psychologist who's done, I think, a lot of really helpful stuff on it. Um, but sort of, yeah, differentiating the two. I mean, I often just say to folks what I just, you know, said here, three or four sentences. And it causes, I mean, it makes a lot of, it brings up a lot of, I mean, a conversation can, can spin from it. Um, but I, I've generally found folks find it helpful. And one of the, one of the, like, um, you know, one of the ways that, so Labrie was founded by this, this family, the Schaefer family. And one of the ways that um, the Schaefer legacy is still very much uh, at work all the time. There's all these little Schaefer-isms, these things he used to say to people. And um, so we often around here use this language of people are glorious ruins. Uh, the, 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 the biblical vision is captured in this idea that we're made in God's image. We've been tasked to do his work uh, as almost like vice regents in this world, to rule this world in a, in a positive way and to do good, to make culture. And so there's this glory that is inherent to all people. That, um, but at the same time, uh, people are also ruined uh, from the fall, like sin, both as this sort of bigger, cosmic spiritual reality that you know in genesis 4 is uh, waiting to devour us it's something out there but it's also something we do internally we mess up and incur guilt um and so we use anyway we use that language at least in south pearl we use that image maybe way too much uh we use it a lot but so then when we i was going to say like when we when we get to then actually differentiating between guilt and shame, I think it's some of the, that image of glorious ruin that captures both that like we've done wrong, um, but it's not that we are pervasively wrong. You know, I mentioned Calvin too. He sometimes described as, you know, some of his teaching is total depravity. I think that's not Calvin. Uh, I think he would say we're pervasively depraved. Like, each part of us is touched by sin, but it's not as though sin has erased all of the image of God or all of the goodness. So anyway, all of that is a fairly roundabout way of saying, kind of keeping that in balance, like trying to remind people that no matter how far you've gone, there is still a glory to being, to being human, to being made in God's image. Uh, we have dignity, we have been given work to do, we have value. Um, but we are a mess at the same time and we're sinful and we're sinned against and we also sin against others. We do wrong. I, that is sort of like in the air generally around here. And then when we talk about the difference between guilt and shame, how then we respond to that, that um, ruin part. Um, 
is helpful. I don't know if that actually answered your question. I started right when you were talking, my mind went to that. <laughs> and now I'm like, I don't know if I um, actually answered well what um, you were after, but I, I found the models and morals to be a very just simple but helpful way because there are, are times where I'm talking with someone Maybe this is more what you were asking. Maybe it's not. So feel, please feel free to say more. But they feel that sense of shame, but they don't feel the sense of guilt. They don't feel guilt at all. Uh, but they do feel like, oh, I wish I was someone else. But they don't necessarily have this sense of like, oh, I was, I've sort of broken God's law or um, I'm guilty before a perfect creator. And then there's other times where people, kind of experience both and just to, to differentiate them as freeing because they then they know they've they they're guilty but the guilt is then they perceive themselves only as like i am wrong completely pervasively i'm only ruined I, there's nothing good in me and i i don't think that's i don't see that as the message of of the Bible. Uh, I don't see that as the message of the Christian story. We are sinful. We are wrong. We're, I don't know. Anyway, I'm sort of rambling, but does that, is that sort of touching on or no? Do you want to? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, your word on total depravity being related, I think is, is good. Um, I hadn't thought about that angle. So that's a, that's a neat way to consider it. I think, yeah, it's, it's the, the models and morals that framework is, I think I've maybe heard that once before in another lecture, but now I'm like, that's striking me in this conversation new. And I'm realizing how many, how many people I talk to many of many of whom not believers are engaging with this idea of like, yeah, I think maybe what you already, what you just identified, it's like, I feel shame, but some of that perhaps is guilt, like a moral that they maybe were taught or believed, but don't really profess anymore or don't don't want to believe. Yeah, yeah that's that's their conscience sort of doing yeah. its work on them. And so, yeah, I think there's it just can be very mixed up. Um, and so I liked that way. I'm trying to think of, and maybe it's just to say those three or four sentences and sort of try and tease it out some, um, because yeah, I just find those to be very mixed, especially among people who are like moral absolutes, maybe, maybe not. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think it's, it's the shame language is more uh, in the vernacular right now, but yeah, I, I like that. I like that breakdown. Thanks. Hold on, Bedford. Hold on, Bedford. I think unless you wanted to follow up on that question, I think Brett had a, a different question, but did you want to follow up on that? Um, I wanted to follow up on it and it was going to be very quick. Okay, go ahead. Um, when a police officer pulls me over, um, going 20 kilometers over the speed limit. I know that I'm guilty, but I feel no shame because person who obeys the traffic laws is not the model I have of myself in my head. Um, that's, that's how I think about those, those two, those two differences. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I think that's good. And I, uh, yeah, that's a good, I, I like that. And go, even going back Zach. um, I mean, I perceive at least, and it's not consistent because none of us are ever like sort of consistent, but I think guilt is coming back. I think guilt is on its way back in, you know, they're, they're the, like a progressive purity culture. 
that is sort of like you have done wrong, whether it's, and I think I don't want to sort of dismiss all of this in some sort of sweeping whatever, but like there's a, there's a newer sense now, there's a sense over the last four or five years, maybe even a little longer that wasn't there 15, 20 years ago, at least in my circles where there's a new sense where it's not just like, oh, someone's, I mean, at the same time where we're sort of relativists on morals, there are certain things that like you can't do, you can't say because they're wrong uh, and there's no grace. Uh, so I don't know. I do think, I don't think it's going to touch on porn uh, or sexuality. I think that was in sort of the, our, our moment, you know, those are, uh, won't be bothered with that. Anyway, I do think guilt is going to, guilt is coming back. Like people are at least looking for categories to say someone else is guilty, whether it's as an oppressor or as a privileged person or, and I think there's some truth to those things. Um, but anyway, I do think shame is really big, but I, I perceive people are also looking for categories to say people are wrong. Uh, and, uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah. So Brett and then Greg and then Tom. Yeah, thanks, Josh. Fantastic talk. Um, I would just like to ask you to elaborate a bit on um, uh, you spoke about anger and righteous anger, and then you spoke about lust and beauty, but either I didn't hear it. And I would like you to elaborate on that and just mentioning, I'm sure you know the story of uh, in The Great Divorce where the guy has the lizard of, of lust on his shoulder and then it gets broken and it's transformed into beautiful steed. So I can see that transformation happening, but I'm wondering what is lust the perversion of in terms of beauty? Yeah, so I'm just trying to find in my now uh, pages here are not all uh, in order. Just the, the exact thing that I said was that um, um, the quote that I said, I believe maybe is that, um, I just want to read it. Um, all too often, if we don't learn to marvel at beauty, we will grow to hate it. And so bend it and break it in order to control it. Um, I believe that's what I said. Um, or maybe where you were. Lost, but then you wanted to just hear a little bit more on on anger and like just any any more. Well, I could I could see the uh, the anger uh, clearly how, how anger can be perverted and turned against yourself. But I was just wondering how that worked with lust. I mean, I can see the end of it with uh, C.S. Lewis and it being transformed into wonderful uh, um, desire within. Yeah. But how would that? just what's the link between lust and beauty so so that but, but that helpful so yes yeah yeah marvel at beauty like if, if you don't treat it in the right way you grow to hate it i'm not quite sure how that works but yeah or just that like if you can't um yeah i think so uh, both both lust and anger are within them are um a good desire that has been turned in on itself or has been hijacked by sin. And so I do think lust can speak of 
there's something still within within lust that um, uh, is it can be longing for connection with another, uh, and that there's a goodness to to our sexuality. There's a goodness to that. It's it's a created good, um, and so you know, desire is not always bad. But when we desire something just for its sake or just for what or maybe, maybe I shouldn't say just for its sake, but desire something for what it can just do for us. And if we don't have it, or if we can't get it for some reason, um, I, I, I see a pattern, I, I see a pattern, then we resent it uh, in, a, in another person. And then um, if we can't have it, we want to almost like break it so nobody else can have it. Um, and so I see, I see that kind of uh, at work with, 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 with lust and anger. They both are, both speak to a desire for a good thing that has been hijacked by our, by our own sin. Is that, is that sort of what you were asking or? Very helpful, thanks. Thanks, Josh. Yeah, yeah no, thanks. Greg? Uh, hi, hi, Josh, it's Greg. Uh, thank thank you very much for your talk. That was, that was really well done. I, I think one thing you talked all about was basically looking at the person who views pornography, you know, as, as the person that uh, is, is, if you like, is the one that we're concerned with here, you know, it, an individual addiction. But I think one thing we didn't, didn't cover that much was what the whole pornography issue does to society in general, oh, yeah. our overall society. And I think it's huge. And for, I mean, just for a start, like, Pornography victimizes everyone involved. It dehumanizes, you know, the so-called actors, uh, you know, uh, involved in it. Dehumanizes, you know, the people, the uh, cameramen, who, whoever else is in, yeah. involved. It just dehumanizes people completely. And I think one of the things it does, it treats women, it, it objectifies women, you know, as so, social objects, or I mean, I'm sorry, sexual objects. And uh, I think it, it, it's a pornography is a terrible, terrible thing for, for women. And yet, uh, at the same time, you know, we see things like, I don't know, I've watched The Big Bang Theory when I think probably I shouldn't be watching it because basically it treats promiscu promiscuity as being nor the norm. And, uh, but also it often <laughs> joked about, you know, the guys and things watching porn, like that was just, you know, what guys did. And it, it you know, it's treated very much in, in, in which is interesting in our entertainment industry as being a norm mm. when at the, it, where, and it's objectifying women yet at the same time, they're very big on, you know, on, the, on the equality issue, which of course we're equal, but I mean, we're different. <laughs> but you know, it's so one hand it's, it's, it's objectifying women when, when there's, when on the surface of things, it's trying to build women up. And then in regards to that too, we're objectifying women. Uh, from what I've read, so I can't, you know, you would know a, know a lot better than this than I would, you know, that uh, many times for, uh, for, for young boys, uh, pornography is their first, uh, first sexual experience and, and, and informs them. So what they're learning, you know, from who knows what age, I don't know, nine, 10, you know, all of a sudden they're watching pornography, which is objectifying women and, and forming their view of sexuality and what sex is like, where sex is a form of entertainment rather than a form of intimacy. 
you know, so I'm just, you know, I'm just, I, I, th I think, you know, it's a problem for people. It's destroying marriages. It's, you know, it's it, uh, destroying people. And, but I think, but I think it's, it's the basically social, social problem within our society that is, is maybe even the bigger issue. Yeah, Greg, I think I just, everything you just said, I want to underline and highlight and initial and put an exclamation point behind. I, I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think there is, I mean, you touched on uh, some of the, I mean, some of the, the big ones. Um, this, um, yeah, again, this is one of many resources, the social cost of pornography, this collection of essays, which is not a pleasant read um, uh, and is also kind of a hopeless read, uh, is, is, or is a read without hope. It goes through all of those, all of those things you just said. And I, I do see, just as you did, I perceive um, an inconsistency, if not a hypocrisy, between a, a culture that um, wants to celebrate equality and sort of um, sexual freedom in some ways. And then um, I just see, I mean, porn itself is so, is so violent and is so uh degrading and there's so much on the connection between even even human trafficking uh and and pornography it's um and then also the reality of revenge porn um there's just i mean in canada right now there is this huge lawsuit with this you know the biggest porn uh website in the world is this porn website in canada called pornhub um, it's owned by an organization called MindGeek. It's in Quebec. And they're being sued by, I believe, 14 women uh, because basically there's images of them either underage or images of them that they don't want that are on this website. Pornhub is sort of like YouTube for porn. Um, it's all free. You can search it. It's all, I mean, it's, yeah, it's terrible, but there's, and a lot of connections between trafficked women and pornography as well. So there's like a, there's, there's an inconsistency or a double standard between sort of, sort of wanting uh, to be like a justice culture um, that cares for the least and then also loving porn that clearly negatively affects um, uh, people without power more than and people with power. So I, I just, I think I agree with, with everything uh, you just said. And, you know, they're going back to the, the comment you made about young boys first times, you know, there's different numbers on, on, um, on first exposure, but, you know, going back to someone like Marianne Leiden's research, um, she doesn't say this explicitly, but like you, you know, a shame now is like people's first sexual experience is when it's actually with another person. Um, there is a script that has been absorbed on a subconscious level about what this is supposed to look like, how this is supposed to be. There's no discovery. There's no, um, you know, there's way, different ways that um, uh, what Adam first says when he sees Eve uh, you know, like, whoa, like, whoa, it's just a surprise. You're standing before a mystery and, you know, sex within the context of marriage, 
or there's there's safety, but you're you're learning about each other uh, and discovering this kind of together. Where I think culturally, um, people imbibe a script on what this is supposed to look like at a very very young age, and the script is one that's deeply degrading and is often about humiliation and. Um, I mean, even the quote I read from Bill Margold, <clears throat> and I could have read plenty more uh, about, you know, the violent nature of porn. Um, some of that has to do with sort of the history of, I mean, I can just say it super briefly, like the history of porn in North America is different than the history of porn in say like Europe. And in America, you know, Playboy sort of hit and I think it's similar probably in Canada as well, but Playboy hit first and it was sort of sophisticated and was connected to philosophy and jazz and it wasn't um, super graphic. But then this other publication, Penthouse, came and just kept pushing the boundary, but was taking some of the profit away. So then, um, <clears throat> and then another magazine came along um, push, pushing the boundaries even more. And so each of these major publications sort of were trying to outraunch each other. And all that happened was it was pushing, pushing the board, like the boundaries more and more where sort of the average porn user was used to just the envelope being pushed, being pushed, being pushed. And then the internet hit and you no longer had to wait monthly for the new publication for the standard to be pushed a little more. I mean, it just happens so fast. And, you know, there's, there's research on, you know, the content of the most watched um, films or most streamed films. And, you know, they are pervasively violent uh, towards women. And if people are absorbed, if young men especially are absorbing the message about what their role is, one who acts in a certain way and women who are also watching at higher rates, it's not like porn is just a guy's problem. Um, they're also absorbing like, this is the role I'm supposed to play or this is what it's supposed to look like. Um, yeah, I think it's, um, yeah, it's, ba it's bad. <laughs> it's, 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 it's bad for, it's bad for a society and, um, Anyway, I'm just now I'm rambling now on something. Well, I was just going to say, I think, uh, I think porn is often portrayed as being victimless and it's anything. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody. Yeah. Um, and, I, I, and, I, oh, go, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, Tom has a question, but there was a follow up question just with what you just said is can you say a little bit more about women watching porn? Would you say that they use it for the same reasons or you said that there's an increase or. Is there much Do men and women watch it for the same reasons? Yeah, I mean, it's like uh, there's an increase of women looking at porn. And I know yeah. that many women that have come through here who look at porn, use porn, often have an experience of abuse. Mm -hmm. uh, the women that I know have been manipulated or abused or shown porn from their fathers uh, or molested. And the, yeah. But I know that that's not always the case, but what I've heard of through those who have come through here have experienced pain and then they it's almost like self-hurt self-harm yeah. with with also a desire and so it becomes very confused but anyway I, I didn't know if there was much research done on 
women viewing porn for what reasons does it follow from what you've said i mean what you what you there's a there's another book um this is by a sociologist it's called addicted to lust pornography in the lives of conservative protestants um which is uh, a guy named Samuel Perry, who was a Christian, maybe still is, I'm not exactly sure. He talks a bit about this and he, he moral, and this is the only book I know that really talks at length about that. Um, he more or less says what you just said, um, uh, Clark. So, um, and yeah, when I, I haven't talked as much um, or to as many women uh, as to men, but there is, also just apart from that almost like the re traumatizing aspect there is just a sense where porn is just the it's just the norm it's just it's sort of one of the many acceptable things to do and it's a way to um you know i had a, a student here who um we had, a, we had a student here who's just an awesome, awesome person. And she grew up in Texas, went to a classical Christian school that focused really hard on apologetics and stuff. And she went to study theater in Boston at North, Northeastern. And the first conversation that she had on the dorm with her like dorm mates uh, like girls on the hall was like, what's your favorite type of porn? And she was like, I wasn't at all. <laughs> like this was not what my Christian upbringing prepared me to engage with uh, in any way, but you know, talking with her a little bit about it, you know, it was just, it's just now part of being um, sex positive being sexually liberated uh, is being kind of aware of different types of porn and having whatnot. So I think, anyway, um, I don't have a, a perfect answer, but that's sort of where my mind goes. Oh, thank you for that reference. Uh, Tom? Um, you know, what I, what I thought I was gonna ask is, I've kind of heard a number of, it discussed kind of in the circle a bit. So let me see if I can get to to what I'm gonna ask you next. And it, it begins with, we, I came in late and I'm sorry, but my wife and I, right before this, uh, we, we finished dinner and we said, let's run out and get some ice cream real quick. <laughs> so we went out and got some ice cream and then to come and turn this on, here are the, the, the language of the porn director, right? Right after ice cream, we go, wow, oh, yeah, 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 uh, that we did, No, that's, a, but here's what, what I'm getting at is, it, you wouldn't normally hear uh, someone recite, I think in a, in, in any circle, Christian or not, what this porn director, as you said, what he stated as, as the purpose, you wouldn't, people don't talk like that. And to hear it, it makes you really think that's, that's the plan that yeah. and, and it's fast. I mean, unbelievable, but that gets me to the next, next thing is we've talked a lot about the objectifying of women. I'm a high school teacher, I'm a high school music teacher. And I have a ton of kids around me all the time and every year I kind of hear because you know I'm kind of part of the the classroom I guess I, I kind of hear the vibe of what's hip and what's currently going on 
And I would think that porn, one, is so accessible to these kids and uh, it, 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 that it's epidemic. And in saying that, I would also say that I would think from what I see around me in the classroom and the high school teenager, that pornography has moved far beyond the objectifying of women into uh, transgender, homosexual porn, and that that is popular among high school kids. So if that's the case, and I'm right, and this is only just from one guy teaching high school, uh, then as you said before, that it's taking, what porn does is take something that is beautiful and supposed to be natural in between in intimacy and breaks it for whatever the reasons are and distorts it, whether it's anger or lust or these other things. So what does this say now then about a society who has pushed that, as you said, with Playboy and then uh, a penthouse. I think you were saying Hustler was the next one. Yeah, so, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, um, what have we moved into where if pornography is this now beyond women? And what does it say about a society? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's a good <laughs> that's a good that's a good question. I mean, I think um, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, do you, do you have any? No, leave you speechless. Just like it would leave yeah. me speechless right now. It, it's where have we gone? Yeah, uh, and how would we? How do you help that? How do you fix that? How do you bring it? You know, it's, it's, and I think part of that is because um, the Christian community is so reluctant, and you weren't, <laughs> reluctant to talk about what's really going on and, yeah. and, and addressing these things because we want to be so inclusive about and make sure that we, and I'm all for being inclusive and in, in, in reaching out to all, you know, all people in, in yeah, yeah. other areas of need. But when we're silent about the damage that's going on with that, then we tell our, I mean, we have it right, you know, it grows younger and younger with the kids that are, yeah. that are involved in this. Liz, yeah. I think Liz has a comment to that. Oh, yeah. Just uh, coming over. Well, it's kind of a comment that Clark uh, made that I'm making for him. Um, but just uh, Clark, Clark was talking in a, I think a devotional that he gave just about like the demonic being present when the vulnerable are the most exploited or like, and, mm -hmm. and so even like talking about porn involving trans people, which I don't really know that much about that. But I think, again, that could, that's a vulnerable community in a lot of ways. And like, porn doesn't like, respect anyone like it's going to take advantage of, of everyone that it can so i think um yeah that's just like a good thing to keep in mind it's not just like a weird thing or whatever but that there's a lot of people um being taken advantage of and 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 then again that kind of goes with this idea that um a, prog a progressive society is like caring for those people but it isn't necessarily doing that in this circumstance 
Yeah, Josh, there's, um, I don't know if you, uh, Joshua, I don't know if you wanted to follow up on that, but there, uh, there's also a question about if, if this is happening with kids at such a young age, how do we have conversations when they're maybe not even aware of the categories? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, I just, I just, I want to just briefly, I guess, say to Tom, I do think, you know, there is, um, before jumping into that, which I'm happy to, um, yeah, with some things like fight the new drug, some of this brain science, there, there are a number of folks um, in the, in the States right now, it tends to actually be more there are some like politically, there's some Republican Congress people and senators. It's true though in the UK, which is not, it's not just sort of politically conservative folks either, but who are using the language of this is a public health crisis um, and are linking um, porn through some of this neurological research giving a way to speak about, and you might've missed, if you came in late, you might've missed some of that, but there's this, a ton, you look at this website, fight the new drug. Uh, yeah, fight the new drug.org. Just a, and they synthesize a lot of the research um, on kind of a, a, a neurological take on porn. The porn is just bad for our health and is bad actually for our sexuality. And there was a new, there was a, a time cover story um, a number of years ago on what's called porn-induced erectile dysfunction, and um, which is talked about also <laughs> at length in this book, Your Brain on Porn, um, uh, Internet Pornography and Emer Emerging Science of Addiction, um, which just is a phenomenon um, that there are young men in their 20s and 30s who are unable to have an erection and with in the presence of another woman or you know whoever without the presence of porn yeah. it's they become so habituated and so shaped by be, they've learned you know where where are there's always some sort of a plasticity or something that changes to our sexuality and i I think um, I think that's a good thing because you know the person we marry is not necessarily the exact same. It is the same body, but it looks quite different. You know, twenty years later, but we can still be attracted to the same person. Like our, I, I don't think it necessarily means we're wired for just spreading our seed abroad with whatever, but um, or scattering it, I suppose. But. Um, uh, uh, yeah, so, but it's, it's people that have learned and uh, have become so habituated to being sexual. They've learned to be sexual in front of a screen. They can't be sexual uh, with another person. So it's porn-induced erectile dysfunction, mm -hmm. which is happening in 20-year-olds, 20, 30-year-olds. 20 and so our sex-positive culture has to be like, whoa, 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 something's not working. And I know this isn't sort of touching on the, the trans issue and moving away from intimacy, but there is, there are a number of voices. They're not as dominant because it's not as trendy. It's not as cool. Uh, folks are just like, this is just a nightmare, this whole thing. And it's not people coming at it from a, uh, necessarily a Christian vision of sexuality or 
they're just like, this is a mess that I don't want anything to do with. This is a train wreck. This is a false bill of sale. Um, and it's so connected, like Liz also mentioned with trans, like it's connected to vulnerable people that are trafficked and um, put on put online for porn. And, you know, porn keeps changing also. But um, anyway, that was just one thought. I, I, uh, I mean, I just, yeah, one thought on that. But in regards to the question about talking, talking with kids, I'll just, one thing that was helpful, surprisingly helpful uh, for me was, uh, or for our family was, uh, we went to a lessons and carols service a number of years ago. So my, my son is 10 and he must've been four or five at this point. And, you know, lessons and carols, it's around Christmas time. And they said, um, you know, they read from Isaiah six and the virgin shall be with child. And so Jacob, who is an attentive listener, was like, what's a virgin? I was like, oh, I guess we're gonna, I guess we're gonna have this conversation. And I was like, uh, we'll talk about this. We'll talk about this later. And so the next day we, he forgot about it by the end of the night. You know, I couldn't, we were sitting in a pew or, or surrounded by a bunch of people. Um, uh, and so the next day I asked him, uh, hey, you know, you asked what a virgin was. And, you know, let me tell you what a virgin is. And then I explained the whole thing uh, without any slang, you know, penis, vagina, semen, baby, everything. Um, uh, Cause I think it's important to use, you know, to not use nicknames um, uh, with those things or with our, with our, with our genitals. And um, yeah. And I was like, do you have any questions? And he was like, yeah. So why does when super or when Spider-Man shoots the web, why does it stick to everything? Like he just like moved on to like something else in his mind, uh, his five-year-old mind. But we've come back to that a number of times, uh, not necessarily to that conversation. So he's 10. We've probably had a sex talk um, at least four more times. And I think the days of, you know, my parents didn't have a sex talk with me at all. Um, and I know there's been times of like the conversation or the talk, but I think it's, it's time for like lots of smaller conversations over the years. And so your kids know um, that you're open to talk about these things, that anything is sort of up for grabs to discuss, you know, um, we, um, yeah, we, yeah, we've had all sorts of, all sorts of discussions with him and he knows he's free to ask. We haven't, my daughter who's six hasn't asked anything yet, but we talk a lot about privates. Um, but we also, I mean, I think I just feel like if I don't want to talk to my kids about sex, the internet is happy to tell them about sex um, eventually or some TV show or some movie or some stupid kid at school. I, maybe I shouldn't have said stupid kids like after midnight here. That's but, right. uh, uh, so I want, like, I want to be the person to tell him that. Uh, I want to be the person to talk with him about that. 
which means I have to be trusted, um, which I mean is a bigger part of like why I, how I think about being a parent or what I, the sort of father I want to be to both of them. But um, yeah, I mean, I think we've also talked about the internet um, and that, I mean, they have some very limited access to the internet, mostly streaming services that have some passwords on it. But um, we've just told them there's just all sorts of things there we don't want them to see. Uh, that's not for them to see. And it's not because we don't trust him completely. I mean, in some ways we don't, but there is, you know, I, I, used, I mentioned that like brief history of like pornography. There's a book that I read called Porn Land um, by a, a woman named Gail Dines. And she does a lot of stuff online. She is the leading anti-porn advocate in North America. She teaches in Boston. I haven't met her. I wanted to go see her speak, but I just haven't done it. Um, but her book starts with like what you can find uh, without a credit card, without needing to enter your um, uh, like birthday or any, any sort of verification uh, in like five minutes. But what a simple search, I think she just even searched for boob and like what she found and she describes it in pretty graphic detail. And it's just significantly more than boob. Um, and, you know, she talks about how kids are nine, 10, 11, 12, you know, there's different number ages for first exposure and just the sort of toxic stew in their stomach of like arousal and confusion and shame uh, all going on. And just, I just don't want that as much as I can help it not to be the sort of initial sexual template um, for my kids. And um, not that that can't be overcome or healed or whatever, but um, so anyway, all that to say, I think there's actually that Fight the New Drug website. They used to, they, I don't know if they still do, they used to have a guided, a guide for parents to talk to their kids about pornography. And they're, again, they're not Christian. So you would obviously hope as, as a Christian, there's much more that I would want to say, but there was just a resource on how to begin to have a conversation about porn and I, I spoke to a mom's group uh, once about this and the moms were, they were just awesome, like so impressive and so good. Um, uh, so on the ball with things, but they all said, you know, all of our kids knew what porn was before we, we said anything to them, like, because it, just being in school, what you pick, perceive, Tom at your school, you know, like it's just there. It's everywhere. It's the easy everywhere. They talk about the three A's of pornography, internet pornography. It's accessible. It's affordable. It's anonymous. All you need is, um, all you need is a signal on your phone. Um, so anyway, I, that, I think that, that that was the question, right, Clark? I think I was answering. Uh, that, I I was, no, that was great. You know, one of the temptations that we have um, is, 
um, as my kids walk in, um, <laughs> is that one of the difficulties we have is we, we've brought it up and we've had several sex talks and, and multiple times. <laughs> multiple times they wanted to, to ask. Um, uh, you know, one of the, the difficulties is sometimes with the pervasiveness of pornography, with the, the viciousness of pornography, um, we give simplified explanations of what it is, but sometimes I almost feel like I'm becoming, you know, uh, uh, you know, clamped down fundamentalist and you can, you can, becoming so nervous about them having a negative view of somebody because it's so easy to access that you almost end up leaning toward that by saying, oh, sex is bad, even mm -hmm. if that's not what you're saying elsewhere. And so yeah. thinking creatively how to communicate that sexuality is good and that, mm -hmm. oh, Liz has some, you wanna, I was just gonna say that, uh, you know, Samuel and Sarah Beth have begun to notice the opposite sex and, and try to not project what they may or may not be thinking. You know, uh, I remember being really attracted to a girl when I was in second grade because she was the shortest girl in the class. I thought that was like the coolest thing. Um, and so you don't want to project an over-sexualization of their imagination. Yeah. Because of either your own mind or what society is saying. And you don't know exactly how their imagination has been shaped. And so just trying to help them and encourage them by saying, oh, no, actually, attraction is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Um, mm -hmm. So we, we wrestle with that as well. And then Liz, one, I think, added to something I was going to say. Was that right? Um, well, I was going to say something on uh, Joshua's behalf about this. <laughs> I'm making everyone else's comments for them. But just one thing I appreciated because I, I spent some time working at Boston Libri with the chestnuts and others and and I maybe you can look my memory's a little bit shaky so maybe you can jog my memory a bit more but I remember like your daughter was young at that point and I remember that she would say like say to herself good body and I think that's the thing she got from you guys and I I think like I, I yeah I feel like you were very good at instilling like a sense in your kids that their bodies were like not something to be ashamed of mm -hmm. um, and that's like a very early thing that's not so much about attraction but I think that's a good like early thing to instill at least. Yeah. That that sounds like something Sarah would have done. <laughs> As opposed to but yeah, no, I mean, yeah. Um I do remember her saying that. She doesn't say that as much anymore. But um yeah. Will anybody else have any thoughts or comments or this Anna, is, yeah. do you have something? Yeah. yeah. So just kind of like tagging a very small tail on the end of that, um, we have three young kids and um, six, four, and almost two. And um, something that I really miss in COVID, but that we have been very intentional about setting up is that I like trust myself very little with these conversations. Because for the same reasons that, I don't know, you're kind of talking about Clark, where it's like, I feel like without even... In T trying to say those things I'm going to say it or the words that I'm saying mean something different to you and so we've super intentionally set up um for our kids godparents but like aunts and uncles um who we really trust to have those conversations too so that it's not just like 
oh my gosh, I need to have these conversations with my kids. And I just would like, you've talked about that community a lot, Josh, which I so appreciate. And so it's like thinking about those adults that I would share those conversations with and trust to have those conversations with for myself would be those conversations that I would, so I would trust, sorry, for those people to have those conversations with my kids. So, um, so I, I like kind of maybe thinking about those communities kind of overlapping. Yeah, that is brilliant. That is really, that's, I mean, that's, we, we have a pretty bizarre or odd life at Labrie, but one of the deep, like, um, I mean, sometimes it's a difficulty, but it's often just a real blessing is we, we live on site here with two other families. And I just like totally respect, um, I respect them as, as, as people, as couples, as, as men and women. And just the thought of like my kids having access to like my friends who, when they wouldn't, when my kids won't talk to me because there's long seasons where I want to talk to my parents. If these are the people they would, would go talk to, like, this is, this is awesome. So I think that's a really, that's a great, that's a really brilliant, that's a really good point. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I think that's, yeah, I think that's good. Okay. Well, Joshua, thank you so much. And I really appreciate you staying up late. Yeah. uh, Offering offering all your knowledge and wisdom on this topic. And uh, we just really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. You're all welcome. Thank I'm, I think it's just, uh, you, uh, you're all very, or you're welcome, for, but it's just really wild. It's great to think people would give up a Friday night to listen about this and um, some God's blessing on you all and as you head to sleep and into your weekend. But uh, yeah, thank you so much for your time and attention. And this is a rich conversation. So thank you.